right. Well, good morning. Well, man, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to do this today. I don't normally get to do this. I don't normally get to preach. And so I'm excited to be able to share what I felt like the Lord um, put on my heart um, to continue on in, in Timothy. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're going to go ahead and get them open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's like, like Brett said, there should be one close by you in one of the seat backs. It'll be on page 1052 of that Bible. Um, I don't know what the page number is in your Bibles. You'll have to look at your table of contents or something to find that. So, so. Last week, Brett launched us into this chapter by identifying for us that while, yes, this is a section addressing those who desire to be elders and overseers, it is also a section that describes what Christian maturity looks like or what it should look like for all believers, right? That these are things that should be found in the life of a Christian as they grow in their faith. And he said at the beginning of his sermon last week, he had this phrase, he said, what is sown is what will grow. And I started thinking about that phrase, what is sown is what will grow. It made me think about our garden at home. We have a flower bed out front. We have some landscaping um, with some rose bushes, and then there are some other plants. You know, I don't know much about what kinds of plants we have, but I do know that if you don't take care of them um, every year, something bad will happen to them, right? Weeds will begin to grow, and eventually they'll be taken over, and the plants that you want won't longer, well, they won't be there anymore because they'll have been taken over by the weeds. And while maybe for a while, if you let, kind of left your garden alone, um, it may be full of blossoming flowers and having some weeds mixed in together, but over time, if you never tended to it, what would inevitably happen is that those weeds would consume the garden and kill the plant and kill the plants that we actually want in our garden. And as simple as this concept is, we know that gardening's hard, right? This is a tough thing, and it really does kind of parallel our lives pretty well. So we kind of, before we dive into all of this and I explain what I mean, I'm going to invite Seth up, wherever Seth is, there he is, Seth, um, to read our passage for us today. And I'm going to have him read verses 1 through 3 so we can have some context for what we're going to be reading. But verse 3 is going to be our focus. Thanks, Seth. Good morning. Um, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, be husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Thank you, Seth. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful, Lord, for your word. We're thankful for this time that we have to spend um, allowing you to teach us through it. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive, that you would get rid of the distractions and whatever um, things that we have brought into this place from outside these walls, Lord, and that you would give us this time to be solely focused on you and what you'd have for us. Um, we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Good job standing up. Sorry, I forgot to tell you to do that, but you guys are used to it by now, so good work. All right, so the idea that's being addressed here. It isn't a new one. It's not a new thought, a new idea that the Bible's presenting here. It's not a special teaching only for those who aspire to be pastors, elders, or ministry leaders. And like Brett said last week, this really is a list of Christian maturity. And so we have this list of qualifications that he gives us, and then in verse 3 we come to some things that we are not to have, that should not be a part of our lives, right? And since Paul lists these four things specifically, I thought that we could take some time and look at each one of them. We'll look at what the Bible says about them, how they affect you and your relationships with others, and then finally we'll look at what the Bible says about how to answer these problems for us. 
So first on the list of things that you are not to be is an excessive drinker, right? Now, right out of the gate, what I, what I want us to know is that we are not having the debate of can Christians have a drink or not. That is not what's been presented to us, and that's not what we are talking about. That's not what the text is communicating. What he says is that you are not to be a drunkard, right? Excessive drinking, a drunkard. Now, I want you to think about just what comes to mind when you think of what a drunkard is, right? Just take a second and think about that. And then ask yourself, is it a good thing? <laughs> it usually isn't a good thought that comes to mind. Why? Well, because someone who is a drunkard is typically out of control, right? Out of control. They are intoxicated under the influence of a substance that has made it hard for them to function without it, but when they are on it, they can hardly function correctly, right? So it's a lose-lose. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, so that those who practice, or that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18 says, to pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, so the Bible has passages all throughout it that speak against drunkenness, right? Drunkenness. Um, you find it in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, Luke, Isaiah, and on and on and on. The list goes on. Why is it so prevalent in the scriptures? Well, I think it's because just like today, it was a big problem, right? It still is a big, pro a big problem. Alcoholism is a huge problem, and I think it was creeping itself into the believer's lives, into the church. Right? And so it's called a work of the flesh. It's tied to those who will not inherit the kingdom of God and is considered something that foolish people do to get drunk. Right? Why? Well, because of what Paul says in Ephesians, because it leads to reckless living. You're out of control. You have no self-control. Things that serve flesh and the sin that our flesh craves. Right? So think about it this way. How many heartbreaking stories do we know of where alcohol and drunkenness is at the center of it? How many children have been abused and tormented by parents who are under the influence? Right? I think even Hollywood has recognized this, and it, and it puts it in movies all the time. You can think of movies where the mom has sent the kids away to their room or, or sent them into hiding because dad's been drinking again, right? Or the countless people who are constantly taken advantage of when they are not in their right mind right? And you might have heard this before, too. You hear it a lot, like, oh, I'm not an angry drunk. I'm just a funny drunk. I like to laugh, and I just have fun. And the key word in that phrase is that you're still a drunk, though, right? There's still that, I'm, you're a drunk. And if you're a drunk, then you are not yourself, right? And you are a version of yourself that you are not in control of. And the scary thing about this for the believer is that if you find yourself here, you've actually made the choice to relinquish your control, or the control of your life to something other than the Holy Spirit, right? So you may think God just doesn't understand that I'm only trying to feel good or I'm only having fun. Why doesn't he just lighten up a bit, right? Well, because he knows you. He knows you, right? And like a parent who knows what's best for his child, he has set boundaries for us. He has put things in place to help us, to protect us, to guide us, to send us in the right direction, to lead us closer to him, not to lead us away from him. 
So Galatians 2.20 says that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, it says that we were bought at a price, right? Bought at a price and that we are not our own. The Holy Spirit resides in us and that we are now his temple, right? And because of that, we are to honor God with our bodies. That includes what you put into your bodies, right? At the end of the day, we are the image bearers of God, right? For believers, we have been saved by the blood of Christ. We have been given the Holy Spirit to seal us, to guide us, to sanctify us all along the way to make us more like Christ. And if a fruit of the Spirit then is self-control, then anything that causes you to lose that self-control should not be allowed to be in your life, right? And that's out of a love and pursuit of Christ, right? Which brings us to kind of the next point that Paul makes is that we are not to be a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Now, I kind of lumped quarrelsome and bullying all together because I believe that they're intertwined. So the CSB, the translation that we're reading out of, it says not to be a bully. The NIV says not to be violent. The NASB says not to be pugnacious. And that word sounds smart, pugnacious. And since words aren't my strong suit, I had to look it up and find out what it meant. And it means eager or quick to argue, quarrel or fight. Having an eagerness or a quickness to argue, to quarrel, or to fight. Now, if we are called to be self-controlled, then surely a violent and pugnacious person, that kind of fits the bill of those who are the opposite of what we've been called to be. The opposite of that self-control. Someone who wants it to be their way or no way. So you better get out of their way before they make you get out of their way, right? Doesn't that just scream of the love of Christ that fills you up? Well, no, not at all, not, not at all. Now, this is one of those things where it's really easy, it's easy to do this, to think of someone else that you know that fits this. So right now, you could probably think of the people who are, who are short-tempered, who are hot-headed, who are temper, temperamental or argumentative, but I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to be thinking about anybody else. I want us to be thinking about ourselves here, about how this text is speaking to you. What is God telling you in this? And I know for me, out of this list, gentleness is something that I lack at times. I've developed a short fuse. I, maybe it's because I have four kids. You know, maybe it's because uh, whatever the case is, right? Shorter than I'd like it to be. And simply, it's just unacceptable. It's not allowed to be that way. I can't make an excuse for it, right? And Grace has to deal with it all the time. Um, this is one of those areas where we would just like to write it off, right? We like to have that, well, I've just always been this way, or, or we'll say, I can't help it, right? But doesn't that sound a lot like a lack of self-control? If you can't help it, you're out of control. We simply don't get to take a pass on sinful attitudes that are present in our lives, right? We don't get to skip over them, right? So sure, you, maybe you're not a violent person, but the heart behind it is what we're after, right? Pride at the center of this, I think, is what's prevalent. And maybe it's because of your upbringing. Maybe your parents weren't there for you in the way that you should be. Maybe um, just kind of, you know, a bullying uh, attitude is a defense mechanism or a self-preservation thing or some kind of coping skill, regardless, at the center of that attitude is just you. And its focus is getting you what you want at all costs and at the cost of those that you care about even, right, at the expense of those around you. 
So you have to ask yourself, am I someone who burns bridges left and right? Are, are you someone who excels in knowing the faults of their other people? Are you known as being hot-tempered? And if you don't get what you want, do you make everyone else around you miserable? Are you constantly in arguments? Do you feel like you just thrive when drama is present? Man, when it comes to your reputation that we talked about last week, are you known as someone who is gentle? So when we take an attitude of, oh, well, I've always been this way, what we essentially say to our loved one is, is, sorry, I just don't care enough to change. And not only are we saying that to them, but we're more importantly saying it to the Lord who has specifically called us out of that, right? He's called us out of that way of living. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, what comes to mind when we think of the word gentle? And I think a common misconception is that gentleness is weakness or passivity, right? But it couldn't be more opposite than that. It actually requires a great deal of strength and of self-control. In order to be gentle, we must not view ourselves as better than anyone else. In fact, Romans 3, Paul tells us that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? And Philippians 2 tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but to, in humility, consider others as more important than ourselves, So you can see how if we are living in this way, if we are following after Christ, if we are humble in our hearts, then we won't respond or react in ways that are harsh and aggressive because our needs are not first on the list and we're not mad about that. We're not mad that our needs are not first. We're okay with it, right? This humility. And this feeds right into the next part that Paul brings up, which is greed, right? Now later, you know, Several years down the road, when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we will point out that greed leads to other kinds of sin. Paul will point that out. Most often, we think of money or power when we think of greed, but really, greed is a strong, selfish desire to have more and more of anything. You fill in the blank. A strong, selfish desire to have more and more of anything never satisfied, always needing more. Enough is never enough. And Jesus actually warns us of this in Luke 12, 15, saying, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And he actually commands us not to be greedy. In Matthew 6, 19, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. So Jesus says to all who are thirsty to come to me and drink and never thirst again. He says to all who are hungry to come to me and eat and never hunger again. He said to all all those who are weary and are heavy laden to come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus promises to fulfill us, to satisfy us, and yet we seek out and desire the things that give us no such promise. Right? And not only do we seek them out, but we do so in excess. And I would just say this, if they do promise it, they're false. They're lying to you. They can't give you what God promises. They can't give it to you. They consume your thoughts, right? They need, you need more and more and more. And what ends up happening is that the worship of your hearts goes to those things rather than the one who's worthy of it, the, the one who gave himself for you, the one who made a way for you to be holy because you could not do it on your own, right? When push comes to shove, Greed is idolatry. And this principle is wrapped up in Hebrews 13.5 where it says to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content 
with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, right? He replaced himself with whatever those things are. Keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with what you have. And even if all you have is, is the Lord, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Now, having nice things, having money, having wealth, those are not problems. Those are not the problems. And I think we know that, right? The problem is our attitude towards them and how we are using those things to, to find our validation, to find our confidence, our, our value, our identity, right? That's where the heart of the matter is. And if you're finding yourself in that place, we need to call it for what it is. It, it, it's sinful. It's sinful. It places God beneath those things. It places God beneath you, between us, right? We choose them and ourselves over him. And in all of this, then, how can we do what he's called us to do? How can we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we've effectively blocked him out with all this other stuff? Or how can we love our neighbor? How can we consider others as better than ourselves as if every single time that we see them, we are literally trying our hardest to be better than them. If every time we see them, it's a competition of who has the biggest, best, newest, coolest thing that you could possibly have. Just a competition. And here's what you need to know about this list. They are all weeds that when left unchecked, they will grow and eventually choke out the flowers. Right? They don't belong anywhere near the believer. At the core, at their core, they are sinful and they are self-serving. They are fueled by pride and vanity and envy. And they belong to the flesh, our former way of life, right? Before we knew Christ, we call that the old self, right? Ephesians 4, through 24, it says to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and in righteousness and purity of the truth. Colossians 3, 5 then says, therefore, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So we are called to take off the old self, to put on the new self, to put to death what belongs to the flesh. And all of this implies a, a call to action on our part, a call to action. We have to be active in this. And we're going to talk about how God is the one who brings the growth, but he's called us to move, right? In Matthew 5, when Jesus is beginning his Sermon on the Mount, um, he starts off with a list of attitudes. And he says, um, if you have these attitudes, then you'll be blessed. And they're known as the Beatitudes. And I thought we could just for a moment, that it would just be beneficial for us if we read them all together. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 3 through the first part of 12. And I'll give you a second to turn there. It's nice to hear the Bibles rustling. It's a nice sound. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, 
for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Now, this, like every other list that we've looked at, or really the lists in the Bible, these are not multiple choice. This is not something you get to pick and choose which ones you want to excel in and which ones you don't. You don't get to pick and choose which attitudes you model. No, this, again, is a list of Christian maturity, right, who Jesus has called each of us to be. And at the core of them, it's pretty evident that it's just a humble heart, one that is submissive and obedient to Christ. All throughout Scripture, we are told to submit ourselves to the authority of God, right? Just to submit ourselves. In Ephesians, we read that the wife is to submit herself to her husband as unto the Lord, and that the husband is to love his wife. And the Apostle Peter writes that young men in the same way are to be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's in 1 Peter 5.5. The theme here is one of humility. To be obedient requires humility, right? Obedience. It requires us to humble ourselves, to surrender to the authority of another. That's what obedience is, right? A surrendering of oneself to the authority of another. And we are told that God resists pride, the opposite of humility. And he resists the arrogance that fosters pride as well. Therefore, having a humble heart and a submissive heart is a choice that we make, right? Having a humble heart is a choice that we make, which means that as born-again believers, we daily make a choice to submit ourselves under God for the work that he has called us to, to receive from the Holy Spirit, to listen to his word, to, to feel him, right? To, to do all of this so that he can conform us to the image of Christ, which leads us to the part to where we say, okay, we've heard all this, but what do we, how do we do this? What is the practical thing to this? And I think we really just gave ourselves the answer. It's that we submit ourselves to the Lord in humble obedience. And while it sounds like a simple am- answer, the act of doing so isn't as simple. Right? It actually is quite harder than it seems, and I'm sure many of us know this by trying it, by failing constantly. Right? We know that it's hard. So while you may not be a drunkard, you might have some addiction to something that the Lord has certainly called you away from. And while you might not be a violent bully, you might have some pride that needs checked. And even though you might not be looking for a fight constantly, if you, if you find yourself in arguments all the time, um, you know, just kind of arguing for argument's sake, or if you just thrive off drama in your life, then you might need to take a second and invite the Lord into that to see what lies beneath all of it. Right? And as for greed, I think deep down, if we're honest, we all have more of it in our hearts than we should, should. I think we all have more of it in our lives than we should have. What makes this hard is the fact that we know, we all know that there are things that we allow to be there that simply should not be allowed to be there. And the problem, like we've said before, is that these things are like weeds, Right? The sin that we allow to stay, the weeds that we allow to grow in our gardens, while they may not destroy us at first, they will slowly continue to grow until they choke the life out of the garden if they are left unchecked. Which is why we have to pull the weeds out. Now, I'm sure most of you know this, but when you pull a weed, it's probably best to get the whole thing out, get the root and everything. Right? Pull the weeds out, get the root. 
And the bigger the weed, meaning the longer that it's been there, the deeper the root goes, and probably it's going to be a lot harder to pull out. Right? Now, you could just, I've done this before, you could just, you know, throw mulch all over the weeds, just cover them all up, maybe they'll die, probably not, you know that they won't, they'll come back, they just, they come back and like take over even faster, um, because they're mad that you covered them up. Um, but yeah, we, we could do that. We could just do that. It doesn't last forever. We could easily put Band-Aids on our lives. We can look the part, but to what end? And how long is that going to last? Like the, like the mulch. It's going to look good for a little bit, but it's not going to last. It's not permanent. To what end? Why would we do that to ourselves? And you might be saying, I've got this under control. I can handle it. I don't need any help, and I don't need the Lord to even help me in this. I can do it. And I'm just going to tell you flat out that you can't do it. You don't have it. You don't got it, right? How many years have you been struggling with whatever the thing is? How many years have you been doing that? You need to realize that you, by yourself, you are not strong enough, and I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you're trying to defeat sin without the Lord, you will fail. You will fail, and it will hurt. So it's time to lay down our pride, submit ourselves to the Lord. And maybe you just need some accountability in your life, someone to check in on you from time to time. There's no shame in that. James 5, 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, right? So invite some accountability into your life. Now, if you're, you know, familiar with gardening, you know that sometimes you can pull a weed out from the roots and then somehow it comes back. It's still there, right? There are some weeds that come back, which is the reason why we have to do Routine maintenance. Routine maintenance, right? That's why it's called for. It's this daily surrendering of self. So Luke 9.23 says this. It says, if, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So here's what I want you to know. Like I said it before, God is the one who brings the growth. It is God that changes hearts. It is God who accomplishes all the work and receives all the glory from your life. Yet he still calls us to this daily death to self. And like we covered earlier, it is putting off the old, putting on the new, and putting to death the sin that is in your life. However, he won't, he won't force us to do it. He doesn't force you into it. It is a genuine pursuit of him in response to him that we surrender, right? It's a response to the cross, to, to the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness that's just been lavished upon us, right? Because of that, we go to work on these things in our lives, right? We, out of a desperate love for Christ, we put spiritual disciplines in place, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us to not quench the spirit. And while we aren't the ones who bring the growth, we can definitely hinder it, right? There are foundational things. These, these spiritual disciplines um, are foundational to the growth and walk uh, uh, with, you, with you in Christ. They're foundational to your growth in him. Things like prayer, like Bible reading, like self-denial, worship, and service, all of these things, there's more that point you closer to him, right? So this is what one of my fears is. I, I fear that we've become too dependent upon the local church to accomplish these things for us. And I know that's a strong statement, so let me explain using my drawn-out, probably use it too much garden analogy. <laughs> so, keep, keep with me. So while we can give you the tools to work the garden, we can give you the tools to work the garden, I can give you a rake, I can give you the mulch, I can give you the shears, I can give you all of those things 
I'm not your gardener, right? Like, I can't pull the weeds for you. I can't do the work for you. We can't do the work for you, right? It is you and the Lord. While we can certainly equip you and train you and point you in the right direction, and that's part of discipleship. Man, if you're a new believer and you have no clue what you're doing, we're going to hold your hand and help you get to where you need to go, but eventually I got to let you go. I can't do it, right? And so the pandemic has really showed us a lot. It showed us some good things. It showed us how desperately we need the community of the church. We need each other, how we need the local gathering of the saints, but it also revealed to us how crippled we are individually in our pursuits personally of the Lord, how much we relied on the church to do the things for us that we should have been doing all along on our own anyways, right? Now, I don't know if you know that today is this day, but today is Pentecost Sunday, and I think it's pretty fitting um, because the day that the churches all over the world celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit is today, the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to us because it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us and enables us to live out the life that God has called us to live. It is him who equips us and, and enables us to live out the mission of the gospel, the mission of Christ in the world, right? God is with us, and he is here to help us cut these things out of our lives, the things that don't belong. And as Pastor Brett called us to do so last week, we must ask God to search us, to know our hearts, to test us, and reveal to us anything that doesn't belong, that we've allowed to be there. Any sinful things that are hindering our growth in him, things that we need to, to remove, then we need to go and get out the shovels, get out the rakes, get out the shears or whatever you need to do, and go to work on the garden, right? Listen, he is faithful. He will bring growth in your life if you just pursue him, genuinely pursue him. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have a, a wonderful life. I'm not saying you're going to have the happiest of life. I'm not going to say that you're, you're going to have a perfect life. It's going to have highs and lows because we live in a fallen, sinful world, but Here's what you need to know is that you are not alone, you are not too far gone, you are not unsavable. If you are in Christ today, then you are redeemed and you are forgiven. So take up your cross and follow him because he's the one who did that for you. He's giving you all of those things. So if you are not a believer then, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, then you have a garden that's only full of weeds. But God, in his great love for us, he made a way through Christ, through sending Jesus Christ, his son, to pay the price that we couldn't pay on the cross, to do what we couldn't do, right? To bear the sins of humanity on himself, to be buried in the grave with him, and then to defeat that by raising again, conquering sin and death, all to make a way for you and for me, right? So place your faith in him today and be saved. Believe in him. Right? This list that we started last week that we are covering today and that we're going to continue to cover next week, this list is not, like we said, a list of qualifications for those um, only who would desire to become elders. Yes, these things must be met if that is your desire, but this really is a list of Christian maturity that all of us should strive for. Like I said before, you will not be perfect. You will fail at times, but praise the Lord for his grace and his mercy and his love. Praise the Lord for his long-suffering and his patience with us, right? He sees the heart and the attitude behind your efforts, and he will meet you there in the thick of it. 
So I want to give us some time to think over these things as we kind of go into our response time. I want us to ask ourselves these questions. Do you struggle with any of the specific examples given in our text? And if not specifically, then maybe the attitude behind them. Then you have to ask yourself, why are these things present in my life? Why do I allow them there? Then ask yourself, what is the root of them? And I want you to spend some time genuinely repenting of these sins, right? To confess them to God and to turn to the Lord and pursue him. And then if you need to this week, seek out and find some accountability to help you along the way. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful, Lord, for your word. I'm thankful for um, just being able to see your heart through your word, God, through your text. Um, God, we are grateful for your patience and your long-suffering with us. Um, God, we're thankful that you give us the Holy Spirit, that you have equipped us and called us, God. Um, and, and by your power, you, we can go where you've, ta- where you've called us, Lord. I pray that we would um, be active in our fight against sin, God, that we wouldn't allow these weeds to stay in our lives, God, that we would cut them out, that we would pull them out by the roots, Lord, in the power of your name, God. I pray that you would do that work in our lives, that you would help us, that you would reveal to us the things that we have been harboring, the things that we have allowed to be that simply can't be. God, would you correct us and convict us of attitudes and sinful things in our lives that simply don't belong in the heart of a believer, Lord. So I pray that you would do that, that you would constantly be growing us, um, that that we would um, strive to be more and more like you, God. I'm thankful for your grace. God, I pray for anybody in here tonight or this morning um, who who doesn't know you, God. Um, They don't have you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that um, they would believe in you today. They would call you um, their Savior, and they would be a part of the family of God today. Um, They would let us know about that. We commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Spend some time thinking about these things, praying to the Lord, asking him um, to reveal those things, and then we'll, we'll sing one more song together.